we never find, we never get to the place of true joy and peace and restoration and redemption that God wants to work in our lives. Because at the end of the day, we're continuing to be in the driver's seat of our lives. There is a deeper need, and you see this, you see people that have everything and yet are very unhappy. Because there's something deep inside of us that needs to be addressed, even greater than enhancements or healings, uh, those temporal kind of things, something deeper. And the answer is right here in verse 5. This is our greatest, deepest need. And I'm going to explain to you why this is the case. But you see it on the lips of Jesus. And it's a surprising thing in this story. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, they're lowering this man down through the mud roof and they're dropping him before Jesus and he's a paralytic and he's on this mattress and Jesus says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins, that's not what we expected Jesus to say. We expected him to say, stand up and take your mattress and go home, you're healed. But he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's really reaching deep into sort of the root of the problem of the man's paralysis. Remember that sickness and decay all came into the world originally because of the sin of Adam and Eve. That prior to that, we didn't have this kind of paralysis or sickness or decay. It came in, the root of it, the root cause of it is sin. If you look with me in Romans 5, Paul describes how this works. In fact, we'll put it up for you. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Now, all sickness, including this man's paralysis, is a subset of death and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam was a type of one who was to come, who is Jesus Christ. That's the one who's to come. And whereas through Adam, sin and death enter the world, Through Jesus Christ, sin will be overcome and death will be overturned. And what Jesus is doing in this particular healing is he's striking a blow on the deepest level to bring the kind of healing that we most need and want. We talked about the temporal nature of some of the healings of Jesus. So, for example, the mother-in-law of Peter was healed in the story that we read last week. But she undoubtedly would get sick again, and she would die. And so it was, a, it was a temporal kind of a healing. It was on some level a kind of a superficial healing. And what Jesus is wanting to do now is to get underneath and strike at the very root cause of all the sickness and the suffering and the problem that we have in this world. And that root cause is sin. And this is why the scribes are upset. Because what Jesus doing, is doing is something magnificent. See, sin was understood rightly by the scribes to be ultimately against God. And so the only one who could forgive sin would be God. All of our sin is ultimately against God. 
And the only one who could forgive it would be God. And so here comes Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sin. And the the problem with the scribes isn't that they want to protect the honor of God. That's actually a, a healthy thing. The problem is that they didn't recognize in the person of Jesus that God himself was standing before them in the flesh. That this was God incarnate. And so in him was the authority to forgive sins. And all of this helps us to understand that the overturning of sin is the greatest need. It's the deep need. And and, and Jesus um, makes this point when he asks the question towards the end of their interaction. He says in verse 9, Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, if it's a cheap grace and there's not real forgiveness taking place, then it would be easier to say, your sins are forgiven, right? But if actually, in actual fact, the sins are genuinely being forgiven, and healing is being brought to this poor paralytic, then the greater miracle, the greater work, is when Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. The deepest work that Jesus is doing in this man's life is when he says, your sins are forgiven. That's the greater work. And so when we think about pouring into people's lives, and we want to pray for them. And sometimes we will see God work in healing ways to bring about change in their lives. But we have to keep this in mind, that at the end of the day, we've got to get at some point to the greatest need of every person which is their sinfulness before a holy God. And unless we strike at that root, then genuine, lasting, deep, powerful healing will not occur. We need to get to the core of the issue. And the gospel does that. Now, just be reminded, and some of you have heard this many, many times. Some of you may be here this morning and you're sort of exploring the things of the faith. And so let me just tell you or remind you, uh, this is kind of the essence of what Jesus is doing in the world. He's going to continue to live. He's going to disciple these uh, men and and the other people and women around him. And then at the end of his life, he's going to go to the cross. And everything in the Gospels teaches us that what Jesus is doing on that cross is he's offering himself as a sacrifice for sin, to meet this particular problem that's the deepest problem, the very problem that brought sickness and decay into our world to begin with. Jesus is going to the cross to offer himself a sacri- an atoning sacrifice for sin so that anybody who would come to Christ and place their faith in him would have the, the, the repercussions of his sacrifice applied to their lives. In other words, their sin would be forgiven. They would stand now in favor before a holy God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And and let me just say this. If you have favor with God, all of your needs are taken care of. Our greatest problem is when we're out of favor with God. So to be brought, to have that favor restored, to be brought back into relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ, that is the deepest kind of cleansing, the deepest kind of healing, the deepest identity work. I mean, nobody could ever say anything more powerful and potent about you than what Jesus said about you on that cross. To say the God of the universe was willing to die for you. No greater statement about your value and worth in this universe has ever been made. And so in that work, Jesus is addressing all kinds of brokenness in us. The deepest, he's striking at the root. And if you want that applied to your life, 
If you want to come to God through the person of Jesus Christ, the way you do that then is by placing your faith in Jesus. That's the only thing we bring to the table. We respond to the work of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you can do that right now if, if, if this is the time for you. Because as we're saying, this is our greatest need. Now this is a really tough thing in our culture to get people to think about their sin. Does anybody struggle with that? We're living in really crazy kind of environment where we are at one and the same time, it seems like uh, we're this, this crazy kind of people who um, are lawless and puritanical at the same time. I'm not sure what that's about, but there, there, there's this kind of lawlessness about us as a society. Everything seems to be able to go, and yet we're constantly pointing fingers at people who are doing the wrong things. So how do you enter into that environment and bring God's laws, God's standards, and have a conversation about somebody's sinfulness, their true deepest need, and, and then in that conversation to be able to offer them the good news of Jesus Christ, which brings the deepest kind of healing in that? How do you do that? I don't know how we do that. It's a tough thing. One of the ways I feel like God has used or is instructing me and in how to do this is to think of myself as kind of like a Trojan horse for the law. So in my life, when I find that I'm having conversations with people and I am uh, transparent with them about my own failings and sins and suffering, it's a way for me to bring into the conversation the concept of the law, that there is a higher standard that we, we need to meet and we don't meet. And so I want to just encourage us as a people to, when we're in those conversations, to think about what are the ways that you can sort of smuggle in God's law through your testimony of your own life? You know, when I was, when I was running away from God in my college years, I was self-centered and arrogant. And in that, I've, I've smuggled, but that's not what God has for us, right? And so we smuggle in God's concept of, of who we're to be and who he made us to be, you know, in your, in your conversations you know, I'm really struggling with patience right now. I have failed uh, in that area, and I'm praying that God would, would help me to do better. And you've just, you've just gotten into the conversation that there's this thing that God wants us to inhabit called patience. And we fall short of living it out. And we need God's help. We need God to be able to address it. So this is a tough thing to get into our culture, but we absolutely have to go here if we truly love people and want to see the kind of healing that God has for us. We've got to get the conversation to sin. Without that, then it will be, the healing will be empty and will not be lasting. And we do have this one ally. The Bible teaches us that God's law is, in fact, written on the heart's of people. And so when we begin to talk about this, we can know that in each person, there is a con concept somewhere deep in there of God's law and of right and wrong and how we fall short. And if we're honest, you know, I think a lot of the people that we interact with, if we could really get them to the place of being honest, we would discover a great deal of shame and guilt underneath the surface and a deep longing for somebody to come in and bring healing. And that's what Jesus wants to do. But we have to be willing to be the mouth, mouthpiece and to address issues of sin. Okay, so our greatest need, the need under all of our other needs is that this world is broken because human beings have turned away from God and sin. Now we have a great asset in addressing this and helping to pour into people, helping them address their sin. And that is faith. You see this in especially the four who bring this paralytic 
to Jesus Christ. You see faith. Now, we can't overcome sin. Um, we can't overcome it in our strength. That's the work of Jesus. Um, and our response to the work of Jesus is, is simple faith. To say, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in the gospel. I believe in the cross, the work done on the cross. And I place my faith in you as my Lord and Savior. That's, that's all that we can bring to the table. But let's not think that that's too little. This story of these people coming to Jesus shows us the power of faith. You may think that faith is insignificant, but there are three important strengths to the faith of these ones who approach Jesus, which will help us in our ministry to others. And the first is this, is that faith, our great asset is a faith that overcomes barriers. Look in verse 4. I love just to picture what was going on on that day, this crush of people, Jesus is teaching, and it says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now imagine Jesus teaching. He's there teaching, and there's some shaking up above. And the way the houses were made is because they were dark and dank, the people spent a lot of time on the roof. And so they were a clay kind of a substance, thatched, and, but it was strong. You could go up there. And so these guys go up there, and they start to dig in the roof. And there's Jesus teaching. And, and I guess the clay would have started to fall. And this hole would have opened up, and the sunlight came in. And the hole's getting bigger and bigger. And everybody's watching what is going on. And before you know it, they're actually dropping down a person through the hole that they've dug in the roof. So one of the lessons is if you're going to pour into other people, your stuff is going to get wrecked probably. Just understand that. We have youth group at our house a lot, so we understand that concept. Um, but that's kind of a side note. Uh, your stuff will get wrecked. Um, your life will be imposed. And poor Peter, if this was really his house that they were in, he's watching his roof be torn up. Uh, but a beautiful thing's happening. And, and what's happening is that people, because of their faith, are overcoming barriers. In this case, the barrier is the ceiling, the actual physical ceiling in the house. And that's not going to stop them. I mean, imagine standing there, you know, the four of them, they come up and they're carrying the guy and they can't get in through the door. There's too many people. And one of them says, let's go dig a hole in the roof. And they all look at him like he's crazy. But then he convinces them and they climb up and they start to dig in. And, and this was something that they would remember over and over. And remember that time we dug through the roof, right? High fives afterward and they drop. The faith overcomes the barrier. what would you do if you were that person? I guess that's the question. What would I do if I came to the house carrying the paralytic and saw there was no way in? Would I, would I turn around and go back home? Or would my faith be such that it would cause me to go up on the roof and dig through? Actually, what are we doing? Maybe I should put it that way. We're in a tough environment, a place where there are fewer Christians. And it's easy to be intimidated. It would be easy for us to kind of create a, a collective huddle and to just kind of hold our own and keep our faith to ourselves. It's not what Jesus wants for us. Are we overcoming barriers because of the strength of our faith? Are we digging through ceilings to drop the people down that we love before Jesus Christ 
for their benefit and their healing. Do we, do we have that kind of faith to overcome? That's what Jesus is, is teaching us in this. He commends them for their faith. When he saw their faith, it was their faith that actuated the forgiving and the healing work of Jesus Christ in the life of this paralytic. I think sometimes we are the biggest barrier we anticipate what somebody might say if we bring up our faith to them. And we anticipate that it won't be good, and so we just keep our mouth shut. And we've just not gone up on the roof. We've just turned away from the door and gone back home. Because we're, 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 we're anticipating what people will say and what they'll respond. One of the things that I think would be really good for us is just to simply go through life prayerfully saying, Lord, would you bring me into contact with somebody that I could pour myself into? I don't know who that is. I notice for myself, I can at times be fixated on certain people who are not actually interested. And in doing so, I miss all kinds of people who would be interested because I'm fixated on a family member or somebody that I think I should share my, pour into or share my faith. And there needs to be a kind of, and it becomes a barrier for us. But Jesus, in our, he's going to overcome these and many kinds of barriers. We've got to move on. So we have a faith that overcomes barriers. We have a faith that's willing to be foolish. I'm sure that these four felt a little foolish when they were climbing up there and digging a hole through the roof, right? I mean, this is not what you do. This is not what you do. People would look at you funny. Um, there is a kind of a, a, a willingness to be foolish in front of others that comes with the call to pour into somebody. It's always a risk to step out and offer yourself to pour into somebody's life because there's a potential of rejection. There's a potential that they're not going to want it, right? We, um, last week, Jackie um, gave cards to everybody and asked you to answer this question. Write down your answer on the card. What... Uh, is keeping you from pouring yourself into other people's lives. And we collected all those back, and the responses were very helpful and very interesting. Appreciate that. 73 people said that they felt unprepared for the work of pouring into others. And that's what keeps them from doing it. And so that's why we're doing this series, and there's some other things that are going to be happening this year um, that will help us to become more prepared to pour into other people's lives. 59 people said that they don't have time and right, this is the treadmill that we're on in our Western culture where we fill our time up efficiently as we can with things that sometimes we shouldn't even be doing, right? But we just try to get more efficient with our time and we, we, we bracket out sort of that freedom because relationships take, they're chaotic, they're messy, they don't always, always fit a schedule and we bracket that out. So we've got to grapple with the issue of time. We've got to be a little bit more free with our time to be in people's lives. But the highest number of responses were for this one, which is fear. Most people said, 81 people said, that they were, they were not pouring into others because of fear. They were afraid. And it was, most of the fears were listed out. They were social kind of fears. Somebody might reject me. Somebody might not like what I have to say. Somebody might, you know, I might lose a friendship over this. Or, you know, I might be awkward. Uh, you know, all these kinds of fears. These were, by, these were the, the, the greatest response was on this level of fear. And, and I understand that. Um, and we need to catch a little bit of what these four um, mattress carriers had. They were unafraid of 
the social ramifications of climbing up onto the house and digging through the roof. And we were having a conversation about this among the staff, and Laura made a, a great point about our fears. We need to distinguish between legitimate fears and less legitimate fears. And, and she was just hiking up Half Dome. She said, a legitimate fear is when you're standing on the edge of Half Dome and you might fall off. Right? That's a, that's a strong fear. There are social fears that are not nearly so dangerous, but sometimes become amplified in our minds over the physical fears. And the enemy, the evil one, loves to amplify the social fears in our lives, to think that if we make a misstep, if we say something wrong, we're going to hurt a friendship, you know, we're going to do this. Um, and, 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 and in doing so, keeps us from stepping out to do the loving thing, which is to share this good news of the gospel with the people around us, to pour it into the lives of others. And you know this is the case when, you know, a lot of times the people who have just come to faith are the most bold and the most fearless. They're the most unafraid to be foolish in front of others. When I was in college, I was living in Spain, and I had just come back to the Lord, and that very night I took out a sheet of paper and I wrote a multi-page letter to my best friend back in the United States explaining to him that I had come to faith in Jesus Christ and that he should too. I broke all the norms. It was foolish. It created awkwardness. But I didn't care, right? And these four have a little bit of that spirit. And we as a community would do well to recapture some of that spirit, to be unafraid, to be foolish in front of others. And then the last one is simply this, is that one of our assets is this faith that overcomes barriers, is, is willing to be foolish, and forms vital community. When we get on board with this work, vital community is formed. Look what happens in verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Again, imagine these guys going up there and removing the roof. Uh, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, it's a communal faith. It's the faith of them collectively working together to bring the paralytic in front of Jesus. And we all have this longing to live urgent lives that force us to develop bonds with others that otherwise would not be there. Deep inside of us is, is a longing to live a kind of a life that is so urgent and tense that it forces us into relationships that go deeper because we need them to survive. And this is what the church is. The church is, is that kind of experience. It's a mission. It's an adventure that forces us to go deeper. Uh, I was just thinking of this um, a few years ago, Clark, who's sitting right over here, and I, uh, we rode our bikes from here, from Berkeley, to San Diego. Now, when you do something like that, there is a kind of community that gets formed, right? Because you endure hardship and struggle and strain. And we still, to this day, will text each other, hey, remember that when we did that, right? Because it sticks with you. Well, let me just say that ethos is what the church is about. We're supposed to be living into this adventurous mission that God has for us. And out of that, we'll cultivate a deeper, vital kind of community that we all long for desperately. You see that with Jesus and the way he lived with the disciples. You see that with Paul and all the hardships they encountered and shipwrecks and craziness. Man, 
Could you believe what the stories they told when they were sitting around the fire and saying, you know, reminiscing on the life that they lived together? This is amazing. This is the journey that Christ has for us. And so let me just end with this question for you. Who are the people who are on the other side of the mattress as you work by faith to bring a broken people to Jesus Christ? Who, if you need to think about this, close your eyes and pray. Maybe you don't know and you need to ask God to show you who are the people who are on the other, who's the community, they're on the other side of the mattress that are in it with you. And you're, 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 this mattress is flimsy and you're having to tell each other what to do and how to do this together. But at the end of the day, there's a joy and an enthusiasm and a wonder that comes from being on this adventure together. Who are the people that are on the other side of the mattress with you. And if you don't know who their names are, then ask God to show you, God, who do you want me to part who do you want me to partner with in my home group? And to really get on mission together. Who do you want me to partner with, you know, this Saturday in Count Me In? Who do you want me to partner with in this community of faith or in my department at school or in my workplace where there are other believers? Who do you want me to partner with to be on mission together? to break through barriers and maybe even be a little foolish from time to time to bring this glorious gospel into the center of the environment where you've placed us. God, would you teach us and show us who it is that's on the other side and would you build vital community as in faith we step out together to serve you, to pour into others, to We have an opportunity to address humanity's greatest need. And we are being invited to be a part of that awesome work. And so Christ, we want to say yes to you. We want to do it in community, but we need your infilling. And so meet us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in much the way that people were seeking to gather around Jesus as he taught, we come to this table. We come because what Christ offers us is beautiful and inspiring and life-giving and vital. And so I want to invite you to come to this table today to be reminded. This table is about remembering, remembering the grace that God has poured out over you. Some of you may be here this morning, and before you even talk to other people about sin... You need to deal with your own sin because you're just racked with guilt and shame right now this morning and you're struggling. And guess what? This is the moment for you to repent, to give it up to the Lord, to be cleansed, to, to leave it at the cross and to walk out of here with your head held high and freed from it so that you're empowered and ready to go serve people. So don't miss this opportunity this morning. Come to the table. Ask God for forgiveness be reminded of his redemptive work in your life. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, covenant is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And we keep celebrating this week after week after week because we need to be reminded that we've been forgiven. 
And it's out of the strength and the confidence of that forgiveness that we bring the forgiveness message to others. So come to the table if you're a follower of Christ. If you decided today to become a follower of Christ, to put your faith in Christ, come to the table. If you need prayer, there'll be people in the back to pray for you. If you want to worship through the giving of offering, you can do that at this time. If you want to turn to somebody near you and pray with them, great time to do that. Take some time to confess sin. Come down the center aisle. Dip the bread in the cup and then go back to the outside. Get prayer, whatever you need to do. And we'll be worshiping. So Lord, meet us now as the church is gathered. The Holy Spirit is present. There's ministry that you want to do in our midst right now. You want us to do business with you. And so we take a moment to pause and open our hearts to hear your voice in our lives through the celebration of communion and the relationships with others in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.